This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everybody, lovely to see such a full house. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And I'm Tessa Hadley, and it's my enormous privilege this afternoon to be talking to the wonderful Colm Tobin about his book of essays about writing, which is New Ways to Kill Your Mother. <laughs> and more of killing your mother anon. Um, and our formula for this afternoon, I'll just do a very brief introduction. Then I've got a few questions to throw at Colm and he will, he will talk wonderfully about them and anything and everything. And we will save 15 minutes at the end for your questions in the audience and I presume there'll be a wandering mic or something for that. And after the event, Colin will be signing copies of his book and any of his books, all his books, in, in the signing tent next door. And I, I really wasn't just being polite when I said what a privilege this was. Actually, I'm a bit of a sort of fan of Colin's. He's one of the two, three living writers that I most admire, so it's just wonderful for me to be sitting here today. Um, he's written, to date, six novels, two story collections. He's won numerous prizes and awards. The Master was shortlisted for the Booker. Brooklyn won the Costa Novel Award. And in 2011, he won the Irish Pen Award for contribution to Irish literature. But I have to say, I list those because it's conventional, but to me, they're trinkets compared to the, the, the real achievement, which is these wonderful, wonderful books. He's one of the most important fiction writers of our time with his extraordinary distinctive prose, his intelligence and authority, his visionary plainness, and his gift of making the life real on the page. Most of you will know that from reading his fictions. And all of these qualities, including that gift of making life real on the page, carry over into his other work, which is his essays where he writes about writers, which often seem to me like a, a, a natural extension of his fiction writing process. Rarely does critical writing convey the, the excitement of reading so vividly as these essays do. And just to start things off, Colm, these essays actually are written from all over the place, some for the London Review of Books, some New York Review of Books, and other, the Dublin Review, and yet collected together into this book, they add up, they have a strong story to tell. How did that happen? Um, I think it happened because I, I, I had quite a lot of stuff and wondered, you know, there's nothing worse than a writer's scraps. You know, they're on the remainder table within a week of coming out. And I thought, is there any way I could avoid this for a month? They could be on the remainder table maybe four weeks later, you know. And uh, so I realized that this was something that I probably had been writing about from the beginning, both in the fiction and in the essays. And that if, if a book came my way, in, in other words, that I would find with any book review, I would be looking for what happened with a writer W.B. Yeats, for example, and his father. That, you know, mm. I, I was asked to give a lecture at the Yeats Summer School, which is a very daunting process because um, 
Helen Vandler and the most serious critics of poetry go there every year and they discuss the most minute areas in the most obvious work in the most intelligent way. And I thought, well, there's no point in doing that. I mean, I'll never be any good at that. So then I realized I was in America and I had a week free. And in Schenectady, in the library, are the letters of the Yeats family. And um, so I started to read the letters between W.B. Yeats and his father. And I realized that his father, who was a wonderful old man, was a painter who couldn't finish paintings. He did drawings. He was a good artist. But he was, an, he was a great talker and a bad finisher. That he, um, he went to America to get away from his son's fame. In other words, that he couldn't go around Dublin without hearing a further thing that his son had done or said. And so he went to America. He had no money at all. So how he kept himself was that every time W.E. Yeats wrote a poem, he kept the manuscripts. He sent them to John Quinn in New York, and John Quinn in turn gave the da some money. Did, he know, did, did the father know that's where the money was coming from? He did. He did. He did. And he, he, did. Had, he, no did. Shame, he had no shame. No shame of any sort. He lived in a boarding house, and he loved a boarding house, all the talking he could do, and wandering around the city. But he decided in his 70s that he'd love to be a writer. And so he'd love to. He, his son by that time had written, I think, 11 or 12 plays. So he decided he'd like to write a play and have it performed, you know. And so he wrote to his son, I'm writing a play. And his son did didn't reply. So I started, I, as I went through the correspondence, you know, every letter, looking for any reference to the short stories he was writing, to the play he was writing, and this would be over years with magisterial silence coming from Dublin <laughs> to this um, father, this errant father. The biography of him is called Prodigal Father. But, um, so that I was able to go to the Yates Summer School with news because no one had traced this um, in the correspondence before. And of course, I realized the reason why I did, you know, was that, that that relationship between a parent who might or might not have done things or finished things and didn't do as much as they wanted to do in their lives, that that is something that I think that impels an awful lot of us as writers, but I think an awful lot of other people too, especially in countries where people didn't get the chances in other generations. You know, in poorer countries. So, like where you, Naipaul, you mentioned, don't you, where the father had a sort of unsuccessful novel, self-published or something. Yeah, there's an extraordinary, extraordinary correspondence between V.S. Naipaul and his father. And um, when he came to England, he would write home. And they would write about writing. His father had self-published a book of stories. And they would write to each other about, look, 500 words a day, and then his father would start, and then he was writing... And it's a very tender correspondence. We, we, we associate V.S. Naipaul now with someone who often sort of says things that he maybe shouldn't say, you know, keep to himself a bit more. But you realize the hurt was caused to him in this way when suddenly a letter comes from home saying, your father died last week, died suddenly. There'll be no more letters, no more writing. All the things you've been talking about are finished. But of course, he was in England. He couldn't go home for the funeral. He was on his own. Mm. And uh, I asked him, you know, about the correspondence, and he said, no, he, he had kept it, but he could never, ever read it again. It was um, put together by his agent, because those letters were too painful for him to read. But it's, it's almost the opposite to the Yeats thing, isn't it? Because your father just suddenly is silenced, and you, he feels impelled to 
go on writing to fill up that silence. Yes, uh, I, th yes I think if you look at B.F. Nichols' extraordinary industry, the travel books and the novel after novel after novel and the efforts to get every sentence right, there, there's not merely a sense of personal ambition, but a sense of the burden or, or, or of a shadow and, and, and it's not Servidia's shadow, you know, it's not the shadow that Paul Thoreau talks about. It's a much, much more interesting shadow. The shadow of generations of silence, but especially your father's silence, your father's failure, and the, and the things your father might have done. And it's now on to you to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's better to come from a family that's never tried art, like Singh's. You write about Singh's family, and they don't even know what art is. They don't have books. They're deeply suspicious of it. Is that safer for the artist to um, come out of that? It's terribly interesting, um, the idea of being a Dublin Protestant, which says um, John Millington Singh, who wrote The Playboy of the Western World, and Samuel Beckett. They came out of the deeply Philistine houses where the Bible was the book. If you wanted a book, there's a good book. Read it. And, uh, and, um, and where the brothers, all the brothers became good merchants, you know, good quantity surveyors, um, you know, perfect examples of their class and created. And in both cases, in this very strange way, these two boys, um, and there's no... You, you, can't find the, 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 you can't find the roots of it, except in something within their own fragile sensibility that arose when they were 15 or 16 and that came to them gently. You know, in other words, that Samuel Beckett, oddly enough, maintained extraordinarily good relationship with his father, who he loved and went for long walks with, and the two of them really had no difficulty with each other. It was the mother, of course, caused all the trouble. He used to get boils on his neck even thinking about her. But at the same time, um, when he decided, which was a marvelous idea, in his 30s, he would like to become an art critic. Mother said to him, well, how do you become an art critic? And he said, oh, I would need to go to Germany for a year and look at paintings. And she funded that. She just said, oh, well, here's some money. Do, you must train in that way. And, and so too, Mrs. Singh, you know, with, with John Millington Singh, gave him money you know, so that they were kept by their mothers and, they were, and their mothers worried about them. Mrs. Beckett didn't keep a diary, but Mrs. Singh did. And she said, Johnny, Johnny's very impractical. Johnny home again, looking very delicate. Johnny not eating properly. Johnny not going to church on Sunday. Johnny this, Johnny that. But the, when, when Singh died, um, and he died young, the two sides met at the funeral, having never met before. In other words, all the actors... W.B. Yeats, all the people from the theatre came to one side of the grave and on the other side glowering at them were the Singh family and they had never met before. And Yeats explained to them, you know, he's so important, we need a death mask made. What a death mask? It wasn't bad enough the way mm. things were. You know, they said, of course not. There will not be a death mask. Yes. That, 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 that idea of having a family who have no interest in literature and... Um, but, but so the family have to live with this idea that if only Johnny had done something practical, yes. it, it might have been better for everyone. Yes, somebody writes that in a letter that you quote yes, at some that's point. Great. His I father think if our died. father had lived, he would have stopped him reading too much and given him yes. something real to do. Yes. That's very touching. Yes. But what's lovely in your essay about 
the Singh family, is how sympathetic, actually, you are to the family. That isn't, it's, you don't write it as if it were a tragic story of a great man held back. It's a much more complicated thing. Yeah, than I mean, that. what's terribly interesting is that every summer, no matter how bohemian he was, and he was living in Paris being totally bohemian, um, he would come home around May or June, and he would spend three months on holidays with his mother. And often it would, it would be just the two of them. What they talked about, God only knows, because it, it's impossible to find anything that they had in common. I mean, he was fascinated by Darwin, for example, and she was not. And um, he was fascinated by um, our, you know, the Irish language, and she was not. So, but they must have just talked in that lovely way between mother and son about you know, neighbours, gossip, things going on. But then in the middle of the whole thing, she writes to her other son to say, you know, the two ev evangelical women had come to stay, and one of them was young and good-looking. And Johnny was spending a lot of time, because he loved women, really, a lot of time with a younger woman and was more or less ignoring his mother. And she said, isn't that awful now? After all, every, when we're here on our own, he's so good to me. Now he's paying all the attention to her. And you realize here, in one second, is the playboy of the Western world. That um, suddenly Peggy Mike, you know, is the young woman. And he, Singh, has made himself into it. He was quite silent, quite reserved. But suddenly he made himself into this talkative youth. And, of course, the widow Quinn is the woman who's being ignored on the stage in the play. And, of course, did anyone realize that the widow Quinn was, in fact, the widow Singh? Not that far away, yes. you know, that in that second, he was, he was living the idea of what it would be like for a young man to turn his attention from a widow who loved him to a younger woman who loved him in a different sort of way. And he got a play out of that, and he set it in the wildness of the west of Ireland compared to the, um, solid, um, the solid Dublin you know, suburbs where his mother mm. was living. All the time in the essays you're doing what you just did just then, sort of tracing the shadows of the works in the biography. It's quite, when I did literature at university, we were sort of not supposed to do that, and yet it's so natural, isn't it, to have a curiosity about the writer's life and his family and look for where the work comes from, and yet there are dangers. Yes, I, yes, I think that you have to leave space for the idea of artistry, for the idea that in a given second, as you're working, and you know this, something new comes to you, and it comes to you from nowhere. Mm. It comes to you from the imagination, just, just as the sparkling nature of the imagination comes as glitter, as much as it does coming as putting water, into, water from a well. You know, it, it's as close to a shooting star as it is to picking water from a well. But sometimes the overall shape of a book comes from a writer's deepest preoccupation. And often the, that preoccupation is to do with mother, with father, with position in the family, with things that happened, you know, 40, 50 years earlier. There was, I mean, the case of Thomas Mann in Dr. Faustus, you know, which, which, which he's, let me think what age he is. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's in his late 60s writing it. And yet he's going back over. He's finding a place in Germany, the place where his mother went to live eventually and where she died years earlier. And he's summoning up that place. He's finding it, writing it again, because obviously it mattered enormously to him. We know in the case of Thomas Mann that Buddenbrooks 
is the story of his own family. And of course, what he does in Buddenbrooks as well is he um, kills off himself, which is you know, new ways to kill yourself. He makes himself into, into Hanno, the young boy who's, going to die, you know, who's, who's a very talented musician. So we know about that. It's an early novel about his own, directly about his own family. But you can trace also throughout his work, I think the most extreme version of it is a Thomas Mann one, where he married a twin. Obviously, he married a woman. And um, then within a few months of marrying her, he decided he'd write a story about an incestuous relationship between twins. And everyone presumed he was writing about his wife and her, uh, you know, and her twin brother. So his father-in-law stepped in when he heard about the story and demanded it be withdrawn from a magazine because it was going to cause nothing but scandal. So that it isn't merely writing, about, writing from what happened, but trying to imagine one worst thing that happened. You know? yeah. And I mean, I mean, I realized that in my first novel, The South, if you look at the dates and look at the places and look at the, um, clearly, clearly, I imagine that my mother ran away to Spain. I mean, she never did. <laughs> and clearly, I make her a Protestant, which she clearly wasn't. But it's clearly her in some way or other. Did you know that when you were writing? No, no you knew no. it looking back. Yeah, yes. when the book came out, and, and just something occurred to me, oh my God, I imagine, I mean, it's, it's like being a child lying in bed. Imagine if my mother ran away, the fun we could all have in the house. We could, you know, like it's that sort of funny child's way of imagining, which you then start to use um, productively in a way. Mm. But, but I think if you did it, obviously, I think if you knew it, mm. I think if, if, if it wasn't coming from some funny aspect of the unconscious where fantasy lives, that you would get it so wrong because it would be clunky and flat-footed in the way you would try and uh, do it. Mm. So it's some interaction between that source of dreaming fantasy with the substance of the family you inherit. That's, that's the chemistry you're describing, I think, isn't yes, it? Yes, and it's also um, in that novel and in the n novel that came after, The Heather Blazing, I have only children. <laughs> and I've all, I mean... I, I don't know anyone here who is an only child, but if you're not an only child, you often do want to be one. You know, you often at certain times, Christmas, you know, but maybe every day, just, mm. I wish there were no, I wish it was just me. And you can start making novels. I mean, it's one of the ways in which you can suddenly get all of those others out of the way and just have the central one, the me one. And that's another aspect mm. of the funny aspect, the funny business of wish fulfillment mm. in the creation of fiction. Mm. Mm. That, that almost connects to one of your themes in here, which you trace not only through these writers' families and lives, but through the novels they write, which is this tension in the individual between the kin, the family, the, the substantial world around them that they enter, and then this privacy of the soul, this solitude, this interior space. You, you really interestingly talk about that in relation to Jane Austen, how Jane Austen kills off mothers in her books so that her girls are kind of free to make themselves up in a way. You seem to yeah. think that's a fundamental... You, you, you see, sometimes the problems are technical. And, and, and that might be the case also with only children. 
that um, some writers are really, uh, for example, Roddy Doyle is really good at making a large family and all the noise of a large family in a book. But, but, but some writers are not, and I think I'm probably one of them. Um, I, I wonder if you also are happier having very small family units in your work yeah. as well. Yes. It, you're right, it's sometimes literally technical. You have six yeah. people in a room, that's yeah. awkward. You have and to make sure you don't lose two. Yes, and all of their names and yeah, the readers would get mixed and up and then yeah. you'd have to bring another one in later on and, you'd, and the editors would say to you, you know, you have five children in that chapter, <laughs> but there's one of them missing at Christmas. Like, did, did they, oh my God, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? That, so that having one can fulfill a sort of a technical necessity mm. um, as much as that. But um, what I noticed was the way in which um, in Jane Austen the mother is missing and replaced by the aunt. Um, and um, that, that even though in something like Pride and Prejudice there is a mother, but she's a silly mother. She's not motherly. Mm. I mean, in the sense that she's just a nuisance, um, Mrs. Bennet, when she talks. But, that the, but, 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 but the idea of Lady Catherine de Bourgh as an aunt who appears, who disappears, who's always causing trouble, who can be ignored, who adds colour to things. But also the other aunt, I mean Elizabeth's aunt, who actually lives in London, and she really is a very important figure in the plotting of the novel because she can take the girls to London. She can take the girls travelling. And then, then if you look at Persuasion, there is a sort of surrogate aunt um, in Persuasion. And of course in Persuasion the mother is also dead. So that, the, the, that idea, and the, the reason, I mean, J Jane Austen um, was very close to her mother. It isn't as though she was writing from autobiography. She was also an aunt herself, but I feel the reasons were technical as much as any other reasons, which is that if you have a mother and, and is, uh, you know, someone who's sensible, who can give good advice constantly, who's there, who's watchful, who's overseeing things, then the young woman cannot come into her own as a sentient being, as a, as a full presence in the book, because she has this other presence to sort of outshout or who's overseeing her. But with no one overseeing her, the reader then becomes completely involved in, in her and her only. And then I realized, of course, that Henry James, who was quite mean about Jane Austen a number of times and quite sarcastic about her fame and, and how much everyone loved, you know, dear Jane, that he really, even though Henry James was close to his mother as well, in something like the portrait of a lady, that it's Mrs. Touchett, who's the aunt who comes to take Isabel Archer to England. And in Washington Square, there's an aunt. In there, that he, he's very, very good at dealing with orphans in the wings of the dove, in um, the golden bowl and not mentioning the mothers almost at all. Mm, mm. And that that idea of leaving the mother out of the book in the 19th century novel is one way to allow the hero, or more importantly, the heroine, to sort of thrive, to shine, to glitter, to live, it, it, be, because she's alone. So I think that the novel is a very interesting space for orphans, or that novelists, as they're working, realize, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the mother, and then, and then I'll be fine. I want to deal with all that business of long conversations, dull ones between daughter and mother. No mother. Get her out of there. And that sometimes you're working technically as much as you're working from some deep you know, neurosis that if only the reader could find out and you shrink, you know, then you would be cured. You wouldn't need to write novels anymore.
I thought it was great that you put in what you've just said and inside the book Isabel Archer and Fanny Price of Mansfield Park together as examples of these girls sort of coming to themselves in the solitude of their own consciousness as you put it because you wouldn't think of that Isabel is so charming and such a lovely extrovert and Fanny is notoriously the heroine that lots of readers don't like because she's too quiet yeah I found um in reading, I mean, I, mean I, I tried to read some critical work by people like Lionel Trilling and Tony Tanner and, and Claire Tomlin, indeed, on, on Mansfield Park, and found that they seemed to me to be making an actual error, I mean, a cardinal error in reading. And I wish I'd had them in my class, because I would have said to them, Lionel and Claire, God, I can imagine speaking to Claire Tomlin like that, but uh, Claire Tomlin, I mean, I wish I'd had them in my class, because I could have said to them, Stop reading like that. Stop mm. liking or disliking mm. characters mm. in books. I mean, that's just rubbish. That's a, I mean, it's that's what a you go to book groups and people say that about your own books. Yeah, and people say to you, I just, I, I, you yes. know, I, I'd love to read more of your work, but I don't like your character. Mm. I said, we're not meant to like them. <laughs> and um, uh, what I was trying to think then was, well, if, if you're not meant to like them or dislike them, what are you meant to do with a book? What is a novel then if it's not a sort of a moral... Um, moral parable, a way of showing that the, some people are likable, which is true, and some people are not, which is probably also true in life, I mean. And should not that also be true in novels? And the answer is no. That in a novel you're creating a sort of pattern. Sometimes the pattern arises from the rhythm of the book, which the reader often doesn't notice. It's there in the book. Some rhythm that is establishing a pattern. But then you're also establishing a pattern within the actions of the book, Something seemed to happen twice, or surprises happening, as though in a pattern you would introduce a sort of redness in, in the middle, and, and then let it fold out from there. And that, and, and that a novel, if you take a novel as being a pattern, as something in visual art, or indeed as something in music, which has a pattern, in other words, it has an oral, uh, an aural, I mean, a, I mean a sound pattern, and work from there, but, but, but they all were thinking in, 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 in Mansfield Park that Fanny Price also arises, as does Isabel Archer, from the idea of fairy tale. And, and I think that idea of the novel being such an unstable form, which is why it survived so well, no one is sure what it is. I mean, is it a parable? Um, does it take its bearings from the memoir or the traveled book? Um, and, you know, therefore, you, you can put a lot of things into a novel, including elements of a fairy tale. In other words, the first thing you want in a fairy tale is an orphan. Get an orphan. Give me an orphan, and I'll know what to do. There was an orphan. Oh, there was an orphan. And her aunt arrived. And in the case of Mansfield Park and um, Portrait of a Lady, there was an orphan, and her aunt arrives. And the aunt takes the orphan away, and uh, it brings her to a much bigger house. And the novel is the story of what happens to the orphan's mind, or what happens within her consciousness throughout the time that she's taken away by her aunt. And of course, the issues have to do with romance. Who is the orphan going to marry? Who is she going to surprise? Who is, who is she going to disappoint? And what you need with the orphan is the solitary nature of her own being, so the reader can become her. You reading alone as the reader in silence slowly become the orphan living alone with this business of that, that all relations are precarious. 
as in when you're reading. The outside world is precarious, and the book is what is full. And therefore, in those two books, Mansfield Park by Jane Austen and Portrait by Henry James, you work it through with this idea of the solitary um, orphan and her aunt. Um, in the... Um, in Mansfield Park, of course, um, it's, it's very easy to say one aunt is odious uh, the, and the other aunt is so lazy as to be worse than odious. But if you think, no, no, that, no, 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 stop thinking odious. Think pattern. Think two aunts, one has to be like this, the other has to be like that. To, to allow Fanny to sort of live between them. And therefore, in the creation of the book, it's, it's almost fooling the reader into thinking that they like or dislike characters, but in fact, they're being... Um, I suppose the word is, let me think, um, taken, uh, taken, I suppose being, being invaded by the pattern without knowing, which makes that a more powerful experience. Mm. Mm. Yes, I, I love your emphasis on, I suppose, is it the aesthetic? Except that sounds a bit Oscar Wilde. Yeah, aesthetic, yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about aesthetic. No. I, mean, I mean, how would you, I mean... Well, I don't know. Uh, it, something about... Design and the right, yes, design. I'm borrowing your words really, design. texture, you talk about texture, texture. and colour yeah. and that's what it feels like and one, one hates the moralising interpretation that critics sometimes do. Another thing they tend to do, which is so dangerous, is to read what happens in the end of the novel as a, as a sort of moral judgement oh, on the middle of it. Oh, that people getting their just desserts. Yes, like Isabel gets her just desserts yes. by marrying the wrong man. And that's, that would be horrible in life, actually, if one thought that. Yes, but in but I, mean, I mean, I think if I want to know how to live, I'll go to Michael Sandel, who was here before, <laughs> who's, a, who's a sort of serious philosopher, or I'll go to Gordon Brown, who's coming after, who's a politician, or I'll find a priest, and I'll ask them. Although, although... Novelists, novelists by the way, never know. No, I mean, no, none of your novelists in here, novelists they're, they're never useless. Know. They're all hopeless at living and very disastrous no. to live with. Yet, and yet, I know that somewhere I do go to novels to know how to live, and I don't believe that you haven't, but in a very, very oblique way that hasn't got to do with being good. I think that might have to do with language and with trying to get something right in relation to feeling and truth. I'm trying to just be truthful in the most detailed way about the most obscure feelings and realizing mm. that if we don't mm. do that in mm. our lives, then we miss most things. Yes. If we, in, in our own experience of, of the world, we don't constantly know that cert what certain things were and were not, what they felt like on a given day, then we miss the world. Yes. So that there, yes, there, is, there is a way of... of, of, of maybe uh, appreciating the world or, or, or having a sense of the world from a novel, yeah. which, which is much more important than mere nourishing. philosophy yes. or mere yes. religion yeah. or mere politics. That's what I wanted you to say. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> one, one last thing I wanted to, to get you to talk about a little bit. Um, I, I've met you at an academic conference once where you were in despair and you came out slightly tearing your hair and saying, I... Hair? hair. Oh, well, come on. It, it, was a while, it was a while ago. And you, you said, I don't speak the same language as these people. Now, it struck me that here in this book of essays, you are in a way weaving quite a new critical language, but one that I think is it's beautifully accessible, but it doesn't cut corners. It's not... It did, yeah. 
t tell me about what you feel about the appropriate critical language for writing well, about books. Um, I mean, I'm in the unfortunate position now where I'm, I'm, I'm in the English department for one semester a year in Columbia University. And all around me are people with, I mean, with not only PhDs, but massive PhDs, which are you know, published in famous books. And I'm always looking at them, and they're always looking at me. And, um, but but, that, the, but the, still the idea which, which, um, of, uh, that, that um, just with graduate students of bringing in the book and saying, could we all leave all critical apparatus outside the door? And I explained to them very carefully, the reason I, I'm leaving it outside the door is I don't know it. I haven't read it. So I wouldn't be any good at it. And if you need to know what Spivak thinks, she's down the corridor. If you know what Judith Butler thinks, she's in the room opposite. Just go and ask them because they know much more than I do. What we're going to do is we're going to try and read a novel by Jane Austen or read a novel by George Eliot and without anything else other than the text. And so if anyone says anything, can you, can you give me that paragraph? Can you show me where that happens in the book? Or can you find that happening again in the book? And I think that idea of trying to return um, the, trying to get um, anyone who's reading a novel to just simply read a novel. Mm. And that doesn't mean to read a novel in any lazy way by just not having, but just read it so carefully. And, the, and you're likely to do that, I think, if you don't have a huge critical apparatus or a huge theoretical, I'm, oh, I'm reading, I only read in a Lacanian way. Well, I would immediately say, well you, will, well, you won't be doing that in here now. I can tell you that now very, very clearly. Or someone said to me one day, but I mean, if, if you were reading this in a Deleuzean way, I said, well, could you spell not only delusion there for me, but spell way for me, you know? And, um, and slowly, you can get the students to trust themselves. And, um, but, but, but I know with this book that um, there's a program on the BBC that if you ever have a book, advice for you, if you ever have a book out, make sure you don't watch. It's on late review or something. I remember I was away once and I had a friend and I put her in charge and I said, so how did it go out of 10? And she said, two. And I said, oh, you mean one would be really good? She said, no, 10 would be really good. But with this, someone said, but this is just gossip. This is just gossip. And I thought, gossip is actually, we live, don't we? From that idea of gossip, yeah. of someone telling you something new that you didn't know before about someone you either know or don't know that is immensely interesting. I mean, what else is there? <laughs> uh, and, um, so, in, so sometimes when you turn to reading the biographies of figures like John Cheever, uh, James Baldwin, Thomas Mann, that idea of something monstrous they did. And, and I don't think writers are particularly different from engineers or software merchants um, or bankers. Or, no, bankers are worse. But I, I mean, but, but I mean that... Um, it's simply a lot of information is left. In the case of John Cheever, he kept his journals and they were published after his death. And the ones weren't published in a library. He also wrote great numbers of letters. Everyone kept them. I mean, some of them are really embarrassing. His, two of his children became writers. And then there's all of his work so that you can study, you know, you, you can get a sense of what we as humans are by looking at the lives of writers merely because of the amount of documentation surrounding all of these lives. We won't get it so much in the future because we don't keep our Skype. Um, I mean, Skype just, you know, isn't like a letter. But with these figures, um, from, you know, Jane Austen's letters we have, 
um, and we have memoirs about her, so that we can get a sense of not just writers, but actual people, and of what the turns and twists in any marriage will be like, or in any life will be like. So, so, so to that extent, yes, gossip. Oh, gossip. Gossip. What else are novels made of? And, and all the time, those of you who haven't yet read these essays, it feels like reading a wonderful novel in which the protagonists are W.B. Yeats and his dad, or Singh and his mother, and so on. That's lovely. I, I think we would all love to be in your class. Claire Tomlin, I'm sure, wouldn't be. Yeah, no, no, she shouldn't. <laughs> I, I think I should turn it over to our audience. Um, would anybody like to ask a question? We've, have we, there's yeah, right a gentleman up. here and a gentleman over there's, there. There's a gentleman right up, right up. Yeah. I know it's going up there. Where's your phone? Look, look, look. Should we start, start with you and then the gentleman over here? Two statements came out very strongly from what you've said and from the first essay in the book, that families have patterns and that novels have patterns and that in both those structures there, are, there is the play of desire and so on and, and, and wish <laughs> uh, and impossibility, maybe even negation or missed opportunities and uh, uh, I'm still puzzled, you know, that when I first began to love your novels it was because of a Blackwater lighthouse and I feel as though what you're saying here is that at some point there is a kind of connection between what's happening in one's life and in the artistic strategies that open up for you and um, I felt with that novel there was so much that was profoundly going on in terms of patterning of families and patterning of uh, readerly responses uh, that just hadn't happened in any novel before. Um, I just wanted to put that to you and say, have you any way of reading uh, The Blackwater Lighthouse, Lightship, sorry, <laughs> with, uh, uh, with those methodologies of um, family? Um, yes, I suppose that um, in that novel, um, the distance between Dublin and home is the distance that has to be um, negotiated. And um, we went every summer to this place on the Wexford coast. My father was a teacher, and so we had long holidays with him. And um, after he died, we never went back there. So it became, for me, associated with a place of loss. And it was made up, and it still is, of lanes. And um, of, it's a very remote place because there's a cliff. And the cliff is eroding. And you could, you could rent a place really cheaply in those years, and we did. And so that, that for me is a place that matters in a way that nowhere else matters. So that once it occurred to me, um, the idea of where someone would want to go to die or where you would go or how that would pattern out. The, the, the image came to me of a, of a woman who would have been one of my aunts rather than one of my grandmother appearing at a gate when she heard a car to know who was it coming now. And if it was one of the family, then you're brought into a pattern 
that is so filled with memory, with dense familiarity, with, with affection, with love, but with those things also as, as gnarled things. And um, so I set to work. I, I didn't mean to write the book, by the way, I have to say. I mean, I really didn't because it was so filled with death and so filled with sorrow. And, and then I had to try and work my way around it, you know, as to um, trying to get different voices going so that the pattern in that would be three generations of voices. That the younger woman, Helen, is completely almost, her, her speech pattern has no Irish um, idiom in it at all. Her mother a bit more. The grandmother uses odd phrases, tells odd stories, and that you would simply do that um, and, and try and see with that pattern, bring in another pattern, which is the idea of people of my generation replaced their family with their friends, especially gay people did. And that, that therefore there were two patterns going, your friends and your family. And if you could only get them to meet, they might dislike each other in a way which would be dramatically interesting. Uh, or so varied that they might, some of them might turn to liking each other. And um, my, I mean, I should say that what you then start doing is putting as many details as possible that you know into the, into the narrative. My, I, mean, I mean, my mother went mad. Uh, the only thing that really drove her nuts was um, a, a short story, very early one, where I describe um, someone setting the table. And instead of putting all the knives and forks in the right positions, just, the mother used to just put all the knives and forks in the middle of the table, and then the children would have to take them themselves. You know, she would never set the table properly. And my mother said, if only she'd known that one of her children was going to write that in a story, <laughs> she, would, she would have always set the table like the woman next door did. And there wasn't that an awful thing to use, and could I not have used something else? In other words, could I not have made something up? Because, and of course, the thing is, you don't, uh, do you? I mean, you go for those little, like, like tiny businesses of the, where the knives and forks are in the middle of the table. Or, you know, um, so you're working out of life, out of memory, in really odd ways. And then you're also, which really I think people find very difficult to deal with who are close to you, you're making up so much as well. In other words, if you only wrote a memoir, they would all say, well, we know that. At least you, you shouldn't have written it, but at least we know it. But the, the, the novel is a terrible business because half of it is lies. And, and, and really awful stuff, you know, and therefore people reading it think, well, they never know which is which. And so you're patterning that too. And um, so it goes, you know, and um, the, uh, I, I mean, I think the main thing is never to worry about other people when you're working. Mm. Yeah. You said about, um, uh, about gay families in particular, and just at the time historically, Kath Weston was talking about chosen families in sociology and so on. Um, and it seems to me that you're doing something imaginatively, emotionally, that was far in advance of any of that. Um, if I and I don't it, know whether you, d you did that on purpose. No, no, I didn't. No, I, the theory of it uh, escapes me, I'm afraid. I, I, just, I just, you know... Just did it. Yeah. Just did it. A gentleman over here on the left. Hello. Um, we read Brooklyn in our book club, and it strongly divided people within that group. 
And I wonder, having listened to your discussion about Mansfield Park and Portrait of a Lady, whether we should go back and have a look at that again in the sense of a person who's an orphan in the new world and in the old world. Um, I, I mean, I was interested um, in... It's, what I was trying to do in Brooklyn, in a way, was trying to capture the, the um, inner life of someone for whom feeling itself was a very difficult business, who wasn't in the, didn't find feeling easy. So that if you said, oh, are you in love? Almost a word would not mean much to her. That, that she drifted. And she drifted within her own, uh, with her own emotional life as much as she drifted in the world. And therefore she's absolutely dangerous if you fell in love with her. Because she, she might or might not return the love. You'd never be sure of her. And, and that therefore she's someone almost look look I, I i don't want to talk about the theory because i've just said no but there was there's there's a funny moment in beckett where um he goes to a lecture by young that's j-u-n-g and young young says that he had a patient now this is a very complicated business it sounds funny and in fact it is funny who was never fully born he said that she was biologically came out all right and was born it was there but but some of her something had not been born. Something had not come. And Beckett was fascinated by the idea because, of course, it wasn't just something that uh, uh, appealed to him autobiographically. I think he did feel that about himself, that he'd never been actually born. But, but from the point of view of prose fiction, having a character who does not share in the general uh, you know, kitty of, of feeling, who's slightly missing one chromosome in that, that that could be dynamite in a novel if you didn't explain it, if you just let the character drift through things without having that. And so I was trying to work with that from within her. And of course, it's the last thing occurs to her because she seems to be perfectly normal. And oddly enough, the only time this was fully taken up was it was translated into French. And I think the, trans the, translation is, the French translation is better than the English because every reviewer in France said that that this is someone who does not, who's at one remove from feeling itself, that every time she sees something, it's as though there's gauze or some sort of, of, of um, curtain which she can't push through um, to, to, to hit feeling. And so I was trying to work with that and see where it would take me. I, I, I was using, to some extent, Washington Square of Catherine Sloper, of, of, of somebody who doesn't seem to be tremendously intelligent, but whose feelings are very deep, who could be very stubborn, and, uh, and, um, but no one will ever know what those feelings would be, a sort of submerged consciousness, and seeing where that would take me. Um, but um, uh, so I don't know if that helps in, in any way, but I was trying to do something like that. Another question anywhere? Gentleman here. Hi. Um, uh, you discovered Sylvia Townsend Warner by chance in uh, Dublin. My question would be, how do you choose what you read these days? Uh, oh, um, it's, um, you feel that, that, that what you choose in, in your teenage, when you're about 16 or 17, might matter more than anything again, like, like picking up the sun also, a, a penguin book called The Essential Hemingway 
with a sort of cut-out picture of Hemingway with a beard on the front, or picking up um, a movable feast, um, absolutely for no reason, and um, find and liking the shape of the word Kafka, Kafka just sounded good. I thought Kafka, and um, those books suddenly realised someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K. Oh my God! Uh, you know, oh dear! You know, um, or something turned into a someone waking from uneasy dream. Gregor Samsa being woken from uneasy dreams to finally being turned into a cockroach. Oh wow! Um, and um, so that those books sort of matter, and uh, you know, I wouldn't even go back to them now. I'd be afraid um, than anything I would read now. But but I do still try, just out of the blue, to go through. I found Sylvia Townsend Warner in an anthology of New Yorker stories, a story called The Children's Grandmother. But um, I, I feel I don't read enough anymore out of the blue. I don't browse. I don't do any, enough of that. I think you can never do enough of that. And I think there, there is a problem we have now. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everyone feels this, of having... 10 books every season thrown at you as the books you must read this season mm. and there being no other ones and the constant feeling that there's a book coming out that no one's going to notice mm. and that if only I could get my hands on it it would do something for me as opposed to I'm not going to name names um, the books that you know are, are being reviewed and big features on and that you constantly have to keep watching um, you know there's, a, there's an Argentine novelist called Juan Jose Sayer, um, and uh, there's, a, there's a novel called The Witness, and um, I can't understand why it's not read by everyone in the world. And I did just casually see a tiny little thing about it and saw it in a bookstop. But I think that you, you know, we've got to all as readers be very, very careful mm. now that that seems to be coming more and more part of the plan by, by publishers and by Amazon and by everyone else every season that there only will be certain books read and all of the rest that won't be discounted in the shops, you know, won't be on the tables in the shops. And I think we've all got to be really careful about, about this effort to homogenize our culture, which, which, is, which is a reader's culture, which means that we're open to anything. So I, I think that's really important that all of us have to do this. That's a pretty good place to end, actually, isn't it? A very good place to end. Okay, thank you very much, Colin. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.